morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I am uh, Rachel. I'm a regular member here at City Church. Come along with my husband, Tom, uh, who's sitting grinning at me in the first row. I'm just going to blank him <laughs> for the rest of the morning. Um, okay, so this morning uh, we're going to be continuing in our series in First Corinthians. It's something that we've been doing here. Um, for a little while and if you're a visitor here this morning or you've missed one or two of those talks you can always go online after uh, this morning and catch up with those past sermons on our website um, so uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 this morning if you've got your bible you might want to get your bible out now or your phone out now we have got um, a pile of bibles here at the front and Dave do you want to hand those out. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible here with you this morning, we have some that you can use. If you just stick your hand up in the air and Dave will come and bring that to you. That's great. And uh, these Bibles, if you don't have a Bible at home um, and you would like a Bible, please feel free to keep that copy. Uh, it's our gift to you this morning. It's free of charge, uh, no strings attached. Even if you have absolutely no intention of ever setting foot in this building again, you can still take it home. We'd love you to keep it. <laughs> Okay, so why don't we, we just pray? Um, Father, I just, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a gift to us. I thank you that, um, that you haven't just given us this uh, dry, dusty old book, Lord Jesus, but your word is living and it's active and it means something for us here and now and um, it changes who we are and uh, how we live. And I just ask that you would come this morning in the power of your spirit and you would do a work of transformation in each of us, Lord, that as we um, hear the things that I've prepared to say, Lord, that you would be at work in each, in each one of our hearts, transforming us, making us more like you. Okay, so just to set the um, the scene, if you if you're not uh, been following us, uh, Paul has been writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and uh, the reason he's been doing that is because he's been hearing reports about what they've been up to, things that they've been doing, and uh, they've been acting in ways that just aren't what he would expect for the people of God and it, they've sort of gone off the rails it was a church that he planted it's a church that he cares about it's a church that was thriving but he started to hear all these things about the ways in which they've been acting um, and uh, doing wrong and he's writing to instruct them to uh, set them right so put them back on the straight and narrow again in a sense and um, we've been looking at all the different things that he's been addressing and just before the chapter that we're going to read today chapter 13 um, he was writing in chapter 12 um, about the use of spiritual gifts and we see that they've been using them for their own selfish advantage and self-promotion instead of what God intended them to be something that is for the encouragement and building up for our church and uh, if you're thinking oh I must have missed that sermon don't worry you haven't we have skipped forward from I think we did chapter 11 last week we're now doing chapter 13 and I think Hazel's going to go backwards and do chapter 12 next week but it's just to set the scene of where we are today and in a lot of ways what Paul has been doing all the way through this letter is correcting some of the misconceptions that the Corinthians have about what it means to live a Christian life and in this chapter in particular Paul is describing what it looks like to live a Christian life and to live in a way that God reflects God's love for us. 
Okay, so it's a really famous passage. I'm sure you recognize it. Maybe even if you've never been to church before, it's one of those passages that um, we were all quite familiar with. But let me, let's read it together. It says, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, sorry, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, so when I was a little girl, uh, there was one thing that I cared about more than anything in life, and uh, that thing was ballet dancing. You're laughing, but I really, really did. <laughs> um, and when I was a, a baby or when I was a toddler, um, apparently my parents said whenever I heard music, I would just dance. I would dance all the time. They called me the dancing baby. In fact, my dad called me the boogie woogie baby. Um, he is a music teacher and he actually even he wrote a song entitled The Boogie Woogie Baby, um, which I'm not going to sing to you. Um, and, you know, when I think about my childhood, I'm sure we all have those sort of phrases that when we hear them, we're like, oh, my parents always used to say that to me. And for me, that was, Rachel, stop dancing. Because I would just dance. I would dance everywhere we went. I'd dance on the street. I'd dance in my bed, just whatever. I just, I just loved to dance. That is what I did. <laughs> and anyway, so my parents started to send me to ballet classes. Um, they decided, uh, let's send her to dancing classes. It wasn't just ballet classes. It was lots of different types of dancing we did there. And it was through that that I discovered the type of dancing that I really, really loved above everything else was ballet dancing and uh, it didn't just remain this little like four-year-old girl's love of pink tutus it became a bit more serious as I got older and I went to all the classes I like trained quite hard I would practice at home I would watch all these sort of videos and copy the person in the video and uh, it got to the stage I started to pass my exams and um, I got to the stage I passed my grade three exam and when you had passed grade three exam at the ballet school that I went to um, you were allowed to go to Saturday morning ballet classes. So, and there was nothing better in my mind than going to Saturday morning ballet classes when I was that age. And um, 
going to that class was for the most advanced people in the school. It was for the people who were top of the class, people who wanted to take it seriously. And it meant you got to learn all these like amazing things that real ballerinas did, all the sort of advanced moves, all the pirouettes, and you got to dance in point shoes. And that, that's what I really, really wanted. I wanted to dance in point shoes. And, you know, that started, I was 10 years old, and the same summer, I remember, the most devastating thing happened to me. At the time, I considered it was the end of life, almost. My parents announced we were moving to Orkney. Yes. And <laughs> there were many th brilliant things about living in Orkney, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, I do look back on that time and think, yeah, that was, there were good things about it. But the availability of ballet schools is not one of the things that's great about Orkney. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, eventually my mom did find uh, this lady who, who would be a teacher and she did run a class and it wasn't quite the same as what I was used to, but uh, the lady had had some dancing training herself and she decided that she would also give me these one-on-one -on -one sessions and um, where she would take me through the more advanced things that I wanted to learn and that I'd hoped to learn. And I did get my point shoes and I did get to learn all those things. Until, you know, a couple of years later, it came to the point where I had to decide how seriously do I want to take this? If this is the one thing that I want to do, um, I had to take it more seriously. And actually, in reality, I couldn't keep doing that in Orkney and I had to go to ballet school. Um, and so it was decided, I was going to audition for ballet school. It was a big deal. It would be boarding school in London, Royal Academy of Dance. And in preparation for this, my parents decided it might be quite a good idea to um, just get some special lessons. And they got that for me um, in Edinburgh. I went down and I spent the, my summer in Edinburgh with this lady who I think she was from the um, Scottish ballet. And just in preparation to make sure that actually this was the sort of right course of action and they weren't, we weren't just wasting our time. And uh, <clears throat> so I went and this lady that I was hoping to impress, who I was hoping was really gonna help me, um, I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, um, the moment you walk through the door, I could see immediately here was someone who knew a lot about ballet, but who had forgotten and who was missing some of the core underlying skills. Oh, it was like a knife to the heart. This thing that I loved, this thing that, that was just everything that I wanted to be. And I had forgotten like some of the most basic things about ballet. And because of that, because I'd forgotten some of those basic abilities, I wasn't able to perform all those advanced things that I wanted to be able to do as well um, as they were intended. I, wasn't, I didn't have this enough strength. I didn't have enough agility agility because of that and so um, this that summer was spent putting some of those skills back in place it was quite painful and hard work I remember but you see the point is it wouldn't have mattered how many times I had practiced a pirouette if I wasn't willing to redress the skills that underlie being able to do those steps and I would never have been able to dance those steps in the way that they were intended to be. I would never be able to make them look as beautiful as they were meant to be if I didn't have those core underlying um, areas of strength and agility in place in my life. And just when I was reading like, about the Corinthians, it seems that something similar has been happening to them. 
And it seems that the Corinthians have been acting in ways that they believe makes the Christian life. They think that the ways that they've been acting uh, reflect what the gospel is all about. They think that they've been acting in a way that reflects a life of freedom in Christ. But all the way through, we've been see seeing Paul saying, no, you've got it wrong. You've missed the point. And it's not that actually a lot of the things they've been doing are deliberate acts of defiance towards God. I mean, chapter 12 is all about using spiritual gifts. Paul's not writing saying, stop using spiritual gifts. That's deliberate disobedience to God. Actually, using spiritual gifts is a really, really good thing. It's the thing that we believe in. It's the thing we, we believe they're gifts from God. They're for us. They're good for us. But actually, what Paul is really concerned about is the fact that they seem to have forgotten what being in a relationship with God is actually about, what well, the underlying point of who God really is and the core message of the gospel and what it really means for how they then live. And that Paul starts this passage by saying, let me show you the most excellent way, and that way is love. And the first thing he says in this passage about love is that if we don't have love, we have absolutely nothing. He says, in fact, if I don't have love, I'm nothing but a resounding gong. If I can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And he's not saying don't use all those things, but he's saying love is the thing, the power that underlies all of those gifts that makes them meaningful. It's the thing that makes them purposeful. It's the, it's the thing that makes them effective. It's the, it's the way they were intended to be used. And you might be um, forgiven for thinking that this passage is all about romantic love. It's uh, often read at weddings, but that is not the kind of love that this passage is talking about. It's talking about the same kind of love that Christ had for us. And one description that I came across was, um, it described it as the deep-seated deep and selfless concern for the welfare of others that is not called forth by any quality of lovableness in the person loved, but is a product, a product of the will to love in obedience to God's command. It is the love that ultimately led Jesus to choose the cross for us. It is the message at the heart of the gospel and ultimately it is the way that God has shown us. So if someone asked you what is the Bible all about, if you could sum it up in one little statement or just a couple of words, um, I'm sure we'd come up with lots of different answers. Some of us might say it's about forgiveness, some people might say it's the story of God, some people might say it's the story about justice. If we went out on the street and asked people, we might get some different answers. We might get, uh, it's a bit boring. Um, it's a book of rules, uh, it's a history book. Um, and Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, when he was asked that question said, it's, the Bible is not just inherently evil, it's just plain weird. But actually, another way you might have heard the Bible described is as the greatest love story ever told. And that's what I believe the Bible is. From start to finish, it is the story of God's love for his people and the ways that he has time after time 
demonstrated his love towards his people. We see it in the Old Testament, um, right from the start, where he makes a promise to Abraham that I am going to make a great nation come through you. And despite Abraham's attempts to uh, bring that all about himself and his lack of faith in God and the fact that God has promised it to him, God still is faithful to that promise and he still gives Abraham, he still brings um, a great nation through Abraham's um, family. He was faithful in his promise and his demonstration of his love to his people in giving him the promised land, despite the fact that they were continually again after again disobedient to him. And then as well, later in the Old Testament, we start to hear about God's promise to his people to send them a savior that would for once and for all time um, redeem us. And we know that that's what he did through his son, Jesus. We read about that in the New Testament. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, so whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. An ultimate demonstration of God's love to us is what we see in his Son, Jesus. It was the way he came into the world. Do you know, it says in 1 John 3 that God is love. And that God who is love became flesh in the person of Jesus and he chose to enter into the pain and the chaos and the mess of this world so that we could know who he is, so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could have forgiveness for our sins. And we read about it in the, um, the way Jesus lived, read about it in his teachings, the way he interacted with people, the people he chose to interact with, and then ultimately we see it through the way he chose to die on a cross the way he chose to take on our sins in our place so that we might know forgiveness and we might have that relationship with God. And it's not just the way that God has shown us, but it's also the way that God has intended for us. Galatians 5 um, verse 13 says, Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command— love your neighbor as yourself and 1 john 4 says dear friends let us love one another for love comes from god everyone who loves us has been born of god and knows god whoever does not know god sorry whoever does not love does not know god because god is love this is how god shown his love amongst us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him this is love not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And Romans 5, 5 says, when we receive Christ in our hearts, then God's love is poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And so all the way through the New Testament, we see passages that talk about the fact that God, knowing God and knowing his love for us are two completely inseparable things. And more than that, we see that uh, the way we live and the way we love others is completely inseparable from knowing God's love. And if we really know God, if we really know God's love for us, then it's going to lead us to live a different life. It's going to 
lead us to act differently, especially in our relationships. And read in that passage, 1 John, that God, uh, it goes as far to say that if we don't love our brother, then we don't have God in our heart at all. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes what God's love in us looks like. Do you know, I thought these little like post-it notes would be really handy, but they're not. <laughs> they're just getting stuck everywhere. <laughs> and so this is what he writes. He writes, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And that, you know, that's a description of God's love towards us, but it's also a description of God's love in us. And it's also it's a description then of what our relationships and how we relate to other people should look like. And I don't know about you, but I find that so challenging. Do you know, if you, if you read there, Rachel is patient most of the time. Rachel is kind, you know, that's, that's the sort of route we have to go down. And, uh, you know, is that what your relationships look like? Maybe on a good day, that's, we look like some of those things. But what happens when the pressure is on, when someone's being difficult, when someone's pushing the boundaries, are you still hoping? Are you still trusting? Are you still patient? Are you still kind towards people? Or are you a bit more like the Hulk? And when the pressure's on and your sense of self is, feels threatened, you erupt into this monster whose sole purpose is to remove that threat, like regardless of the consequences to the, of the people around you. And uh, I have to admit, sometimes I can be a little bit more like the Hulk. Yeah, Tom's just smiling at me now. <laughs> Shouldn't have looked at him. <laughs> and I, I remember one time in particular that just stands out in my memory when I think about that. And it was the night before our wedding and uh, we got married in Orkney. And uh, sort of the thing you do up there is it's not the same as you go to like a big hotel and you know, it's all provided for you. Uh, you sort of do it a lot more yourself. And so um, you organize your own reception a little bit more and you decorate the hall and uh, you, just, you just get all like family, friends and everyone to, to um, help out. And it's good, it's a good experience. Uh, it's a lot cheaper, but it's also a lot more stressful. And uh, weddings are stressful at the best of times, as I'm sure you can imagine. But um, the night before our wedding, my anxiety levels were quite high, my stress levels were quite high, and there were still things to do at the um, church hall. There was things that I had like really specifically in mind that I wanted about how the, it was going to be um, laid out. And um, we went down to the hall to finish it off and we got there and some family friends, some really dear family friends, lovely family friends who had just really worked really hard for our wedding had been there before us and they had finished off the, de like the decorations and the things, they just put everything out and it wasn't what I had wanted. <laughs> and instead of, you know, reasonably going, hmm, well maybe this is okay instead or saying, well, could we just all together just change it? Uh, I just exploded and all of my stress and all of my anxiety just completely erupted out of me and there was tears and I'm pretty sure I was stamping my feet. There was definitely shouting. And uh, when it all stopped, I looked and everyone was just sort of staring at me, including my 90-year-old great auntie who could be heard to say, 
ooh, I think someone needs to take a cold shower. <laughs> I was just like, thank you, anti-violet. <laughs> anyway, what I'm not saying is that we all need to turn into people who never experience negative emotions, who never experience stress, who are just completely shut down and placid. What I'm trying to say is that to love in the way that Paul describes in this passage is not natural. And actually, we need the work of the Spirit in our lives to transform us, to allow us to love people like this, and to change us to make us more like Christ. And Galatians chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, he's writing all about um, what it looks like to live a life in step of the, with the Spirit. And he's encouraging the, the Galatians to live a life reliant on the Spirit. And uh, he says, do you know what a Spirit... Uh, Oh, do you know what spirit? Do you know what a life filled with the Holy Spirit looks like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's the Spirit of God at work in our hearts, transforming us, changing us, that allow those things to grow more abundantly in our life. And so the question for us this morning is, are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us in such a transformative, trans, I can't say that word, transformative uh, manner that our lives are changed? And not just a little bit when we first become a Christian, but actually continually, are we becoming more and more abundant in the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Are we open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change how we relate to other people? 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And part of what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians is the life of someone who has been set free. So like children, when they feel hurt by something that's happened to them or something that someone says to them, they run straight to their parents. They look for reassurance from the people that they know love them the most. And quite often what happens is, even if they're absolutely devastated by what's happened, they quite quickly forget once they've received that reassurance. But as we get older, running for a hug and a kiss from our parents actually sort of stops being enough to cover up and heal the hurt that we've experienced. And we know the older that we get, that we can't all go running to our parents. I can't go running to my parents today if someone says something horrible to me. I'm a grown up, <laughs> you know? And, but actually what happens is um, we can't just go around continually feeling hurt by people, so we develop defense mechanisms. And in some senses, that's healthy. We need to have defense mechanisms because we can't just walk around absorbing all the, the bad things that happen to us. And I know that some of us will find ourselves in situations that are actually prolonged periods of difficulty. You might be in a relationship that um, actually for a long, long time, it has been very difficult, it has been very hurtful. But what happens when we build those defenses is that Sometimes we use them in an unhealthy way and sometimes we use them so that we don't ever have to experience hurt or pain again. And maybe for you, you've experienced a lot of people who have just disappointed you and actually you've decided in your heart, do you know what, people just let you down. And so instead of trusting people, you just 
decided that actually I'm just it's just not worth it what's the point in putting trust in people they just let you down and so you live with your guard up to as a defense against that but that's not a life that is free that is not a life that has been made whole and transformed by the spirit of God so are we living a life that is freedom in the spirit or do we know that in reality we have built up defenses do we know that there are things present in our life that are stopping us living in that freedom do you know for a like such a long time I lived a life that was uh, just all bound up by fear and uh, I had experienced a lot of just different things in my life that um, had led me to be a person that just was always just quite fearful of what people would say of what people would do to me and uh, and I was not because of that I wasn't able to act in such a way that was kind I wasn't able to act in a way that was trusting fear became the thing that underpinned all of my relationships and love was not the thing that was underpinning all of my relationships and I became shut down in all of my relationships because of that. Do you know, 1 John 4 says, further on in that passage that I read, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And I think we need to just uh, examine ourselves. We need to look at ourselves. We need to ask, what is it that's underpinning all of our relationships? And uh, this morning when I was, or not this morning, when I was preparing for this, actually there was something for the men in particular, but maybe for more of us that I felt God wanted to do. And it's just that sense that actually, um, maybe you're not bound up by fear, but maybe you're uh, just living in a way that's quite closed down and shut off and indifferent because actually that is easier. And I think that we need to examine ourselves and say, are we alive to the work of the Spirit in our life? Or do we need to experience a reawakening of that Spirit in us? Um, and we know, do we know that we've become, it's become too easy for us to be indifferent to those around us? Okay. All of us, if we want to live a life of love, all of us, if we want to live a life of freedom, need to allow the Spirit of God to be alive and at work in us such an extent that it changes who we are and it changes how we live and how we relate to others and so that we live in a way that we don't hold back in our relationships okay why don't we stand